Hey guys, I'm really excited to tell you about a new podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. On Monday, June 5th, we're launching something called Binge Mode. It's a podcast dedicated to rewatching and expert analysis on our favorite TV shows. For the next six weeks, Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, our mother of dragons and the maester, will dive deep into HBO's Game of Thrones. From theories to history to their best impersonations of Robert Baratheon, watch along with our Thrones experts. The 10 first episodes binge mode drop Monday, June 5th. They correspond to season one of Game of Thrones. Then every Monday after that, we'll release a new batch of 10 episodes leading up to the premiere of Game of Thrones season seven. You can subscribe to Binge Mode now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Big Picture, a Channel 33 Movies podcast. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer. Today on the show, I'll be talking with Jonathan Levine, director of The Wackness, 50-50, the recent Amy Schumer comedy Snatched, as well as the pilot for Showtime's new series, I'm Dying Up Here. But first, I'm joined by Jason Zinneman, who writes the On Comedy column for The New York Times and also wrote the recent book Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night, which I recommend everyone pick up right now. Jason, thank you so much for being here today. Great to be here. So, Jason, you've been covering Amy Schumer, the star of Snatched, for six plus years, essentially since you've been writing the column. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what you saw from her in the early days and how you've seen her evolve as a, as a comedy figure. Yeah, I mean, I saw her at Gotham Comedy Club and was, I, the first person to write about her in the New York Times it was the, probably the second column that I wrote about comedy. And she seems like a, you know, particularly you know, gifted storyteller and deliverer of jokes who had like a really well-established character on stage. And then I I ended up, before Inside Amy Schumer started, I spent several months uh, with her reporting a a story about her writer's room in which I spent a lot of time with her right before she became famous on television. And even then, she was thinking about what it meant to be famous. And so I, I think I, and I've watched her now become, you know, Uh, I think she was arguably the biggest, most influential comedian in the country, and and maybe the first female to have that role since Roseanne. And now, of course, has moved on to be a movie star. So, you know, she's... uh, I've seen this huge arc. This sounds like it's... um, It's, like, arrogant to say, but but I can't... I'm not actually not surprised. Um... And, not, and that's not just because she, I thought she was really talented and really funny, but in spending time with her, what I, what she also is, is um, ambitious and really hardworking. Um, and the the most telling uh, story I have of Amy Schumer is, you know, I've interviewed legions of comedians and, and artists generally, and one question that I, I often ask when doing like a longer profile, you know, when I'm talking about their childhood, I say, what kind of what kind of high school kid were you? Because what clique were you in? And invariably, they the they were a nerd or an outcast or you know some weirdo. And Amy Schumer is the only person who's ever answered this question this way. She's the only person I've ever ever interviewed who said I was in the popular crowd. And I thought that was so telling <laughs> and refreshing um, for two reasons. One, I think it shows you that even when she was little. She wasn't some weird, quirky goth kid. She was a theater kid who, you know, 
definitely loves theater and loved to act. But she was she was in the popular crowd, even as, in high school. Second of all, it sounds counterintuitive, but at the place where she is now, saying you're the popular kid is actually the least cool thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. The cool thing is to say, oh, I was never popular. I was, you know, I was ugly and, and, and uh, an outcast. And what that says to me is that she really does, um, you know, value being honest and true to herself, um, even if it makes her look bad. It's a cliche, but uh, I think it's something that uh, if you're a comedian coming from where she comes from, um, is, 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 uh, you know, is, is as much part of her success. Um, and I think you see that in her stand-up as well. Um, she doesn't mind looking bad. And that answer, I, Frank, that answer is, uh, you know, I think I wouldn't. It doesn't make her look bad, but in the context of like celebrity interviews, that's not the quickest way to get sympathy. I feel like she's made a lot of decisions like giving an answer like that that have that she's kind of come under fire for. You know, what have you observed about the criticism that Amy Schumer has received, and you know, what do you make of all that in the last couple of years? I mean, the the, the when I was when I was doing the story about in the writers' room, you know, I was. It took like two or three months, maybe, and I kept a search on on, on Twitter to see what everyone was, was tweeting at her. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's one thing when you hear about oh, women stand-up comedians have it tougher than men, and they take more abuse online. And, and but when I actually did that for a couple months, I actually got to see it, like how extreme it is. Um, the amount this is before you know even Inside Amy Schumer comes around, but the amount of shit she takes it's on a daily basis, even back then, um, about how she looks, about it. It's, it just doesn't compare to, to, to her male equivalent. And now then you put her in the context of a superstar stand-up comic and the movie star, and it's just magnified. Um, so, you know, that's not to say that all the criticism of her is not, is, is, you know, not uh, earned or is not true or isn't, doesn't have, you know, points to make, but I do think there is a real double standard and and a kind of um, when you're in the realm that she is, which is the sort of trying to be a big movie star, stand up movie star, it's almost like um, becoming a big, you know, running for a, a high office. There, there's a, a, a likability gauntlet that you have to run, and I think she gets hit from it from both ends. You know, she she gets hit uh, by it the same way you could make an analogy to you know to how Hillary Clinton gets hit in her position. She earns that, and people should should she deserve all the scrutiny she gets. Um, I would say she's had, you know, a few missteps for sure, and I think that some of her recent problems, I think, have to do with what she's trying to do now is be a working stand-up who plays, you know, has big high-profile special release and be a big movie star. There's very few people that have done that without hurting one of those two. Uh, when she put up that Netflix, the latest Netflix special, which wasn't that far after her HBO special, you know, I, I was like, wow, that's that's a huge amount. While you're also putting together a sketch show and being a movie star, um, you know, that's a lot of product you're putting out. Um, and, and it so feels I, like, I, Jason, I think, it, you know, it feels like when, when men are that prolific, you know, particularly with Louis C.K., we've definitely... He was lauded for that. You know, he was lauded for his ability to write a special year and to also keep creating Louis. And it does seem like 
there's been a little bit more Schumer fatigue and criticism around the fact that she's been creating a lot of stuff at the same time. Does that seem accurate to you? I think it is accurate. I think I would say uh, there's two mitigating factors. One is that even Louis, as busy as he was, isn't in the ball game of headlining huge movies. That's right. He's putting a TV show out, but he really is a different. At this point, you know, she's in the she's the, her compare uh, her analog is Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell, um, Eddie Murphy. That's the game she's playing in right now. And the, and the second point is that you know is sort of the political one. Starting with her TV show, you know, some of her success became from having kind of this uh, more overt feminist angle. Um, and then she became a big, you know, she became active in terms of gun control and then supporting Hillary, et cetera. And that, of course, is going to polarize her audience because, of course, she, she's her, um, when she goes to play stadiums in Florida, her crowd isn't partisan. You know, she's so big, unlike, you know, say, Tina Taro or someone of that, you know, a small, she's drawing Trump supporters, too. Um, so she's being very political while at a certain level of fame, where Louis has moments where he's been outspoken and political, but I would say his work um, is less so. So, you know, a lot of her choices, both playing in this big ball game of Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell, and also wanting to be, and also being political, uh, you know, make the target on her even bigger. It's a fascinating thing. We'll have to see what happens with Amy's film career. There's kind of no telling if the persona that she's created is something she'll be able to sustain. Do you think that, you know, the sort of um, boozy, promiscuous, you know, self-effacing, but kind of goofy persona that she's built is something that she can be doing 10, 20, 30 years from now? No, no. The next real challenge for her is, you know, you got to evolve. I think parts of that she can keep, but... I, I think that any, um, you know, any, any great comedian to stay on top has to evolve. Um, and just particularly a stand-up who is drawn from their life. Um, so, you know, what she's like at, you know, 45 or 50 is going to be totally different. I mean, it depends. I think it's possible for her to still play that role if she just wants to be a movie star. I mean, Adam Sandler's pretty much had the same a similar persona, but even he, I would say, has, has evolved. Um, but uh, certainly if it's in her stand-up, she would need to, I think, adjust to, to where she's at in her life, just like any successful stand-up would. I mean, look, her first movie was a massive hit, and her second movie, I would say, you know, we'll still see, is, is not a really a sophomore. I mean, it's, a so- it's not a terrible sophomore slump. I mean, she, uh, her fr- I think she's made like $32 million. It's been successful. And I mean, it's, broadly, it's been successful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of you would think by the reviews that it had. The reviews have not been good, but again, if you're comparing it to to Sandler and Will Ferrell and stuff, those guys made a lot of movies that critics didn't like too. It's true. Um, it's something that Levine and, and I talked about about the prospect of working with a comedian who you know may not get great reviews after he's gotten largely good reviews his whole career, and it's it's different when you're working with a big comedian star, right? Definitely, definitely. I think I think. You know, as a second effort, which is, again, a real Amy Schumer vehicle. I mean, Goldie Hawn isn't the one selling tickets there. Mm-hmm. It's, here's a, in a way, this is a better test than Trainwreck, because there's no Judd Apatow, there's no critical acclaim. It's ba- there's no one else in that movie who really is getting uh, selling box office. To the extent that this thing is a hit, it's because of her. So if this movie does well internationally and makes, you know, $60 million, $70 million, whatever it is, I think Hollywood's going to look at this and be like, this is a real movie star. She can 
make you know close to two hundred million with, the, with with good reviews and everything working right, and then even if everything doesn't work right, her name still is bankable. Let's transition really quickly. I want to ask you about something else that Jonathan Levine made. He directed the pilot of I'm Dying Up Here, which is Showtime's new show about comedy, stand-up comedy in 1970s L.A. You know, I know you are a student of the genre. I'm curious, you know, what you think about putting stand-up comedy on TV or in movies and, you know, what the successes and failures of that can be. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of possibility in it, but the problem right now is, is there's kind of a glut of it. There's been so much of it now that um and you're gonna have you know also there's this movie big stick which is coming out uh which is also has a stand-up comic protagonist and like for instance the, the scene where the stand-up comic is first of all the scene where the stand-up comic bombs or the scene where the stand-up comic is bombing and then he, he, he leaves his material and starts telling the truth those are those are now pretty hack you know we've seen that so many times the challenge for these shows is going to be, all right, how, why another stand-up comedy narrative? You know, what fresh thing is it bringing to the, you know, to the table? You know, the advantage of it is that you can tell a, a, a dark story or a romantic story or emotional, and then know that you, you could have a few laughs into, in the movie. That's, that's the real, you know, the great thing about having a stand-up comedy protagonist in TV or movie is that, you know, if 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 if, the, if things getting too dark or too slow, you know you can rely on a few jokes on the stand-up comedy stuff. So there's, there's a, a real appeal to it. But I mean, I think the problem now is that there's just been so many of them that it's hard to stand out. Now this show is set in this interesting time period, which is a real, you know, has become the sort of legendary period. And yet, it's not about the people. Who you, who you, it's not about Leno and Letterman and Sandra Bernhard and Misty Shore, you know, although there's a kind of a Misty Shore stand-in. So it's also competing not only with other shows about stand-ups, but it's competing with all the stories about the actual people, including the book that it's based on, which is an excellent book, by the way. It will be interesting to see how it's received. Yeah, I think just like with Amy Schumer, the jokes are going to have to work for people to be completely entertained. Um, Jason, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your expertise. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. All right. When we come back, I'll be talking with Jonathan Levine. Very happy to be joined by Jonathan Levine today, director of Snatched, among many other films. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, Jonathan, put me in your mind right now. You've okay. just finished uh, The Night Before, your comedy yes. with uh, Seth Rogen, Joseph yes. Gordon-Levitt. Great movie. Thank you. How do you make a decision as a Hollywood filmmaker about what to do next? I'm very curious. It's almost a reactive decision. I mean, The Night Before was a very easy decision because it was a script that I wrote. And then I found myself in a position to... Sort of, I wanted to take that next leap as far as having more people see my movies, mm-hmm. as far as doing something very commercial. Um, but I didn't necessarily want to do something that was deeply impersonal, which is sometimes how you get into, like when you go up a scale, you're kind of in a very non-filmmaker world. You're really catering to a lot of different things. Comedy is a great place to sort of expand your scale and do an original story. Um, so Amy had just kind of finished Trainwreck and I had read the script and I thought this is a great way to sort of apply. I thought there was a great core of heart to it. 
and also the ability to kind of work on a bigger canvas. So I thought this is a great way to sort of expand uh, my skill set and also just kind of make that jump to the next level as far as like a poppy kind of commercial movie. Was there ever a time when you were going to do not a comedy? Did you toy with doing pure drama or a franchise kind of thing? I mean, I've definitely like done like sort of rounds on the comic book movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the end of the day, they always kind of felt like a, a weird fit. Like I, I definitely like took a few steps deep into like the Spider-Man world mm-hmm. um, because I thought that on a certain level that that was like, it's a kid from New York. It was like, there was a world in which my having made the whackness like made me a very good yeah. fit for that. Um, but at the end of the day, that didn't feel like a good fit. And so, no, I mean, I think the thing is, it's like, if you want to, expand what you do you sort of have to accept the box that they're giving you a little bit you know what I mean like I can't just be like I'm gonna do a big drama because that's not necessarily what my kind of filmography lends itself to so Mm -hmm. it would either be a comic book movie or a comedy if that's what I wanted to do and it was at the time so that's interesting though because I think if right after the whackness I think you could have said you could have made any kind of movie, really. Yeah, like that yeah, movie yeah. is a lot of has a lot right. of different colors in it. Right. So, do, do you feel like you are now on a trajectory as a a comedy filmmaker? No. Well, maybe I was, but I'm but I'm derailing it. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of what every um, which is kind of what every film is. It's like an it's an interest in not being placed in a box, but it's also an interest in getting more people to see your movies, making more money. Like, I mean, there are also pragmatic things that 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 apply to this stuff but I think that for me now I have you know this movie and I have the Showtime pilot and then I have my sort of background which is kind of varied and all over the place Mm -hmm. it'll open some doors it'll probably close some doors but then I also have the opportunity to write my own thing which I haven't done in a few years so there's always that so there's like a lot of obviously compromises that would have to come with making, say, Spider-Man. But yeah. there's also a lot of things that you have to manage when you're working with a huge star personality like Amy. Yeah. What was your first meeting with her like? You know, what did you guys talk about? How did you figure we out kind of if you talked could work about, together? Yeah, we talked about our own relationships with our moms, actually, mm. because that was kind of one of the most important parts of this movie to me. Um, and we got along very well. And... I mean, to say that there are compromises when you're working with Amy, it, it's it's not necessarily true because the way I work is so collaborative that nothing feels like a compromise. It just feels like a shared vision. And especially on this movie where I'm a guy directing a movie about women, mm-hmm. um, I really needed to lean on them a lot. Um, but that's something I learned from working with Seth and Evan, which is like it sort of becomes a mind, mind share kind of groupthink thing. And at the end of the day, I'm the filmmaker and I can veto things or not but I also have all these people to lean on so it doesn't necessarily feel like a compromise when you're doing comedy what is the writing process like with someone like Amy like Katie Dippold is the screenwriter of the movie but there's obviously on set I'm sure there's a lot of things that are changing you guys are reimagining what is that experience like yeah I mean and it's not just on set it's like Katie wrote and rewrote and rewrote and then Amy and Kim her sister wrote and rewrote and rewrote and then we got to Hawaii which is where we shot and we would all kind of sit down together and you pass drafts back and forth and you, you know, you sort of share this final draft document and it gets a little confusing. So mm-hmm. you need to use the asterisks in the uh, in the margins. But then what we would do is we would sit down with Amy and Goldie like two weeks before and we would go through that. We would page through the script and we would take their notes and then we would kind of rework it. And it, it's a constant writing and rewriting process that you're right, goes all the way on to set. Mm-hmm. And when something's not working on set, we kind of workshop it in the moment 
come up with different jokes, come up with different even intentions for the scene. Um, so it's a very, very fluid process. And it in, and everyone sort of feels ownership over the script um, in a way. And, and to Katie's credit, she was she was fine with that. I mean, I, th- I think that it was a little more than she's used to on her movies with Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you have people like Amy and Kim who are incredibly talented writers, just amazingly talented and funny people. It would be a crime not to let them collaborate on the script. I know you did a lot of that with Seth and Evan on the night before. Yeah. Is that something you had done on your previous movies too, or were they more like locked environments or like with something like Warm Bodies, you had something that was really hard and ready to go when you were shooting? Well, Warm Bodies, I was like the only one who wrote on it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have it on Warm Bodies. And on the night before, I mean, and Seth and Evan do this on pretty much all their movies, and I'm just waiting for it to happen on the next one because we're about to, sh- we're going to shoot in like three months. But, you know, at a certain point, it's like, oh, this doesn't make sense, and this doesn't work, and this, and it, and it was like, I remember about two months before, Seth was like, I think you should re-outline. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? Like, that's <laughs> terrifying. I'm like prepping locations that we may never shoot and just pretending that we're going to shoot them so that the whole, like, movie doesn't think I'm insane. And then in the meantime, I'm re-outlining. And it's just great that they're so rigorous. I was very frustrated in the moment, but then at a certain point, like, Seth came into New York. We were all in New York. Evan came and uh, Kyle and Ariel, who had helped me actually a lot on at the last minute on Warm Bodies with helping me rewrite the voiceover, mm-hmm. which actually made the movie kind of take a quantum leap forward. So anyway, we all kind of crowded into this room and Seth, the place Seth was renting, and we wrote day and night for like a week. I remember I would leave his house at like sometimes the sun was coming up. That's got to be really scary. I mean, do you have to tell the studio that you're re-outlining? What, is, what about the apparatus around you that you have to manage? Well, the great thing about Seth and Evan and, and our producers and financiers had worked with them on several movies, and, and including 50-50 and This is the End and stuff, that, you know, they just, no one is ever going to be mad at you for continuing to work on the script. Hmm. Um, even if it sometimes creates some inefficiencies, um, the, the way that their movies are built are really support that kind of fluidity. And as a filmmaker, you you have to just roll with the punches. And it, it's, on a certain level, it's amazing because you realize that you can kind of do anything. It's very empowering. On another level, it's, a, it's kind of a bummer because you can't take that sort of really long view visual approach to a movie. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like The Night Before is, is a movie that benefits more from those rewrites than it would have from whatever five cool shots I missed out on. <laughs> But it is scary. I mean, I would leave the house and just I would be freaking the fuck out, definitely. Um, but I'm really glad we did it. But you're throwing yourself back into that fire again. Well, yes. But it's also like it was a little different because it was something I wrote. And mm-hmm. so it was that that kind of thing of giving away your – it was it was not just the intensity of working those late hours and all that stuff. It was kind of just like letting go a little bit mm-hmm. of, of my pre-existing version of that movie. Um, and I liked the movie that was evolving, so it was fine. Um, but it was a little scary. But in this situation, this is going to be more akin to I think fifty fifty. Whereas we've had a, it's like we've had a script for a very long time. It hasn't really changed that much. It's it's it works, and we're continuing to work on it. We're going to do a table read in a couple weeks. Like we're going to sort of hit some benchmarks a little earlier in the process so that we don't find ourselves in that situation because I don't think anyone wants to do that again. So I think of you as a very personal filmmaker because of the whackness. Yeah. Uh, wh- what is it like trying to balance putting your touch on stories that you haven't written? How do you feel about the concept of being a director for hire versus making something that originates with you? I mean, I like doing both those things. So when you ask, like, how do I choose doing Snatch, like, Snatch was a, was a reaction to having done a semi-personal movie that I wrote 
and just getting sick of writing and just being like, I just want to do something that someone funny who I know, like I know they're funny and I know it's going to be funny and I just want to do that and not even think about it. And the Showtime show that I did was this, you know, Dave Flabot, this amazing writer, this very like kind of like smart dude who just wrote a very um, insightful and very different than anything I would ever write, um, almost literary like script. Um, and I was so excited to do that. So um, you kind of have to find the personal in the sort of uh, for hire gig, you know, like otherwise it's just not going to be that interesting to you. And it's also you're just not going to be the right person to do it. So in Snatched, it was just I just had a son um, and I was starting to think almost existentially about, you know, what it means to be a parent and how I treated my mom and all this stuff. And so it sort of just came along at that time. And I thought, OK, I can kind of view it through the lens of that. Um, and in the Showtime show, I was always a huge fan of stand-up comedy and always kind of like liked viewing comedy through this kind of dark lens and, and, and whether it be the wackness or, or 50-50, this sort of combination of comedy with this kind of sardonic view on the world. And, and uh, so that felt like a good fit too. I think you always just have to find something. Otherwise, there's no reason for you to be doing it. Let's talk about I'm Dying Up Here. That's yeah. the pilot that you're talking yeah, about yeah. on Showtime. Um, it's very good. Thank you. And I think what's interesting about it is you've created essentially a parallel universe to reality. <laughs> right. And I, I have a lot of questions about how you go about doing something like that. Obviously, the writer is is in charge of creating this world, but how do you execute against like a Los Angeles that you're essentially recreating, but also creating a new reality attached to it? Well, it's it's weird. My I, I don't know if this is just sort of happened. I mean, it's it's what I did was I used references that were all filmic, so. I would my references would be it wouldn't I wouldn't be looking at like images of of 70s LA I'd be looking at like a Mazursky movie. Right. So I think it's sort of just that kind of maybe enabled it to to that maybe helped with the sort of reality not reality version of it. It's sort of this I mean these guys were almost living in their own cinematic universe so it kind of made sense to do it that way and then I would do like I just ripped off like all these great filmmaker so I ripped off Scorsese I ripped off Boogie Nights Mm -hmm. which is like the same thing it's like a it's like a copy of a copy of a copy but it just sort of seemed if if we had the grounded performances and the grounded script that it seemed like it would kind of blend in this in this weird good way um I ripped off Oliver Stone I ripped off Mazursky I ripped off Altman do you is that Um, something that before you start a movie you say I need to watch these 10 movies to get prepared yeah yeah yeah. Always. always always yeah um so like for Snatched it was like um it was like 21 Jump Street. It was everything from 21 Jump Street to Fitzcarraldo. It was like all these. Kind of, <laughs> and they're always so weird, you know, and because I like to sort of throw them all together and shake it up and then just sort of see what happens. Um, and it's a shorthand that I can have with the DP. It's a shorthand that I can have with our editor. And yes, for I'm Dying Up Here, I watched, you know, Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice. I watched uh, King of Comedy, of course. I watched Boogie Nights. I watched what else? A lot of really, really cool. Oh, a lot of Cassavetes too. Mm. Um, and because the killing of a Chinese bookie, I, I watched like killing of a Chinese bookie. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, like I think a lot of like the red light in the club stuff was just stolen directly from that. And then you kind of add to it this like a dash of boogie nights, and it, you know, and then you can kind of turn the knobs up and down in the editing room. But that's those are the things you have, and they're going to be part of the DNA of it. And they sort of also let you know how many risks you can take. Because um, you start to feel like a pussy if you're like, this shot is too crazy. And then you're like, well, boogie nights, like, come on. And it worked there. So may as well try it. What's your relationship to TV at this point? Is it something you can see yourself doing more of? I love doing TV. Um, I, I, 
I've had kind of mixed success in it. I think I think I did a TV show that we shot like here. I mean that we we had the writers room here called called Rush, and I was sort of half in it, half out. And I I was I had written the, the pilot script, and then we sort of got into it was like before pre Mr. Robot USA, mm. and so blue I, skies time. It was blue sky time, and I you know whatever. It was just not a good. Um, not a good situation and I was not necessarily that psyched with the finished product um with I'm dying up here I'm really stoked with it and I'm doing another TV show with Nas at BET really um yeah I see you have Illmatic Illmatic's on the board yeah yeah Yeah. Illmatic is a is an important document at the ringer um it is the greatest album ever maybe (laughs) Purple Rain I like too yeah well Purple Rain may be getting more votes these days for sentimental reasons obviously yeah 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 um, but what do you, so what are you doing with Nas? We're doing a TV show about his kind of childhood and his sort of the origin story of, of becoming Nas. Really? Like docudrama? Yeah. Okay. I think. I mean, we've been doing it for so long. I don't have any confidence that it's ever going to happen, but I, but it's supposed to happen. It started out as me just wanting to kind of like get to sit in a room with him. Um, but we, you know, I wrote a script and it's supposedly going to happen at some point in the next year. Um, so I have that. And then I have another thing that I'm writing about film school um, that I really, really want to do. And that's like a personal thing that I would just run that show. But I'll have to see how much fond, traction it gets. a fond look at film school or? Yeah, I okay. think so. I mean, it's like, it's about creative people and about, you know, how to, it's kind of like just hustling kids in LA, broke kids trying to, trying to make it. Where did you go to film school? I went to AFI. Okay. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was really fun. Um, I went to AFI with Sam Esmail actually, who, oh, who does sure. Mr. Robot. I loved it. I mean, it was, I, I ended it with a lot of debt, um, but I had a short film that, that actually got me a lot of attention and, and helped me make my first movie. Um, I just thought it was really fun to go to school and talk about, you know, creative stuff every day and just uh, how to just kind of get a more sophisticated look at, at, at how films are made. And I got to make movies, um, which I wasn't doing. I was, prior to that, I was Paul Schrader's assistant and I, I wasn't making movies I just wasn't I was 24 I was going out of New York I was getting I was getting drunk and, and then I would just like sit in his office and like be a terrible assistant I, I want to ask you about being Paul Schrader's assistant that sounds interesting um it was really interesting but anyway let me let me just finish this film school thing because like I loved it and and it really worked out perfectly for me it was um like I said a lot of debt so like when people ask me if they should do it I'm very cautious to recommend it because other than myself and Sam, I, I feel like a lot of the my colleagues are, are are still having a hard time kind of making a living. So unless you have rich parents, which I found out a lot of my colleagues did, and which is great. It's helpful. It's helpful. It's really nice. I mean, I did not have the benefit of having that, so I ended up with $250,000 in debt that I just paid back, I think, after Warm Bodies. Um, but... I found it to be an incredibly rewarding experience, and I learned so much. All you need to do is have four successful studio films to pay off your film school yeah, debt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty terrifying. Yeah, I was surprised at how long it took to pay back my debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm still surprised at how much money I have. Are it's, you? It's not, it's not as much as <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would think. Well, that's a very unspoken thing, right, among filmmakers. It's, people seem to think that you're living in some uh, plush mansion, but it's, it, is, it's a, it is a job. It is a, a trade. It is a trade, and and I'm not certainly not complaining. I, I I do have a lot of money now, or at least what what seems to me like a lot of money, um, but it was it it didn't happen very quickly. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I was making Mandy Lane, by the time I got done with that, 
it was like I got paid 15 grand for I think two and a half years of work. So by the time I was done with that, I was like selling the I I owned the computer that the we cut, we were editing on, and I started, had to sell it on Craigslist. I remember a dude came up to <laughs> our office and bought the actual computer, and uh, so when we sold Mandy Lane, that was like the first time I ever got like real money, and that was cool. One more thing about yeah. film school: when you were in film school, are you making the films that you thought you were going to make when you were in film school? No, I, I probably thought I'd do more like Wackness type stuff. Okay, and I think I, I think I will. I mean, I, I feel like I can still sort of zing and zag a few different times before I need to sort of lock into my old film years. Mm-hmm. You know, like I feel like once you get to maybe fifty five, sixty, you're kind of just like you probably should pick a path and just like <laughs> stick with those type of movies because you're a little. Well, you have less to say. I mean, you know what I mean? Or at least less to say to young people. And saying something relevant to young people is probably one of the most important things as a filmmaker, I think. Um, So by that point, I'll do like period dramas and shit. But until then, (laughs) I feel like I I can do, like I want to write a sequel to The Wackness. I have other original things I want to write. I probably will end up doing one of these comic book movies. Um, I, You know, I just feel like I want to, I like to keep working. And Mm -hmm. I like to, even though I actually hate working, but but I actually... Like, it feeds this kind of need in me. I don't know what it is, but I like to keep working. So I do feel like there's still time to sort of do whatever film school version of myself I, I imagined. But I also feel like even in film school, I wrote, like, a thesis project that I thought was, like, so great, and they didn't approve it, you know? So they so then I had to do someone else's project, and that is what ended up getting me to the next movie. So I think there's something a little best laid plans about it, that you know sometimes the universe just pushes you in a certain direction and I also have a skill set where I can like work with other people really well and so I would be remiss if I didn't pursue that too I mean like my favorite movie of mine is 50-50 and that's I had so little to do with the writing of that and that's probably nothing I ever imagined myself doing but it's something that turned out really well Paul Schrader's assistant yeah so what you went to film school after you were doing that. Yeah, so, so like... you're living in New York, you're in your early 20s, you're trying to break into film. In my early 20s, yeah. I'm reading page two. <laughs> I'm reading, like, Hunter Thompson. Me, me too. Yeah. Ralph Wiley. Who yeah. else were you reading? Yeah, yeah. Bill Simmons, maybe. Bill Simmons. Yeah. I was reading Bill Simmons. <laughs> I was reading the mailbag thing. And then Hunter Thompson. But I like the Bill Simmons stuff way better. Anyway, I was working at an internet company, like, no idea what I was doing, and, like, yeah, like, reading ESPN.com, and just, like, spending the whole time probably on like my fantasy team and hiding from people to, to so that they didn't know that I didn't know what I was doing. Sounds like we had a very similar early 20s. Where were, a lot where of the were same you living? Things. I was living in New York, yeah. reading a lot of ESPN.com, trying yeah. to pretend like I knew what I was doing. Yeah. It was amazing. I was like this consultant at an internet company, um, and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I could write, and I could like I kind of could pretend I knew what I was doing. I was relatively eloquent, um, more so than I am now. And then I got this opportunity to work for Schrader and it was a lot less money and I, I had just been laid off actually and I had this apartment that I needed to pay for but I was like I really wanted to get back into film I thought I think my original idea was that I would work and then make movies like on the side with with the money I was making because I was making good money right out of um, college and then I got laid off and I never found myself like just I was not I would write a little bit, but I just was not a self-starter in that way where I would where I would just devote like all this time to making movies. Um, so I started working for Trader. My, my girlfriend at the time was working for Philip Seymour Hoffman as his assistant and found out about this job working for Schrader. 
and I went and started working for him. And it was not, I mean, it's it's not that fascinating a story. I mean, I just basically, he had this office in the Paramount Building in New York. He was making Autofocus. He was editing that movie I really, really liked. It's a great movie. Yeah. And so I got to see that. You know, it's most of the stuff I learned was just from, like, listening. It would seem like I wasn't learning anything, and I was just doing really boring stuff. But at the end of the day, I guess I did pick up on a lot of stuff. And what I picked up on was, like, he he was a badass. Like, he had a really cool attitude. He was really supportive of his collaborators, was really supportive of people at his studio when he agreed with them, but also had this iconoclastic, like, fuck you, everyone, if you if you crossed him. And I could see he would get stressed sometimes, but he had this kind of cloak of that attitude that really, really helped him. And so not that I ever kind of took that on. It's, I, I could never tell if it was an affect or if it was real. And I, I ended up really getting along quite well with him. And he would come to my movies and give me notes. And he's just a great dude. But he is like an OG 70s filmmaker. And so it was just so interesting to be around that and to see kind of how he interacted both with his editor and with people at the studio and with act, trying to get actors to do movies. So I do think I picked up on a lot of stuff, even though most of the time I was just like giving him directions for how to get to places and stuff. So you wouldn't corner him and be like, tell me everything about the making of Taxi Driver? No. Because I think that'd just be weird. Like, who yeah. wants to do that all day? I don't know. I, I, some people want their ego fed, and some people just want to be able to get to the, where they need to go. But he probably didn't want me talking about Taxi Driver. He probably wanted me talking about his more recent stuff, right, you know? Right. Um, what I would do was when he would leave the office, I would kind of go through his files. And both because I had to. Like, he would tell me to file stuff. But then when I came across something, it was like the Taxi Driver file. I was like, what's this? And it's like the original... <laughs> yellow legal pad of an outline for Taxi Driver. Just like page one, Travis interviews at the, you know, whatever, taxi company. And like page by page, what was what was going to happen? And that was kind of remarkable to me because I had been writing, but I never knew what was going to happen from one moment to the next. And he had planned and outlined the entire thing before he even started writing. And I think like there are stories he wrote that out of like a car, you know, he was living out of his car. So like even a dude who's like, life is incomplete and under disarray, had to have that kind of rigid structure for his screenplays. And he is one of, I think, probably the greatest screenwriter who ever has existed. So uh, that was very interesting to me, too. And then just, like, picture, like, a signed picture from Scorsese to him of the two of them at can that said, from one Travis to another. <laughs> um, there was all this shit that I probably shouldn't, that was probably personal that I shouldn't be talking about. But it was cool. That's very cool. And Taxi Driver is like probably my favorite movie. It's an amazing experience. So for you now, uh, what happens? You've made Snatch, you've made I'm Dying Up Here. You are making a movie with Seth and Evan again? I'm making a movie with Seth and Evan and Charlize Theron that we're going to start shooting in a couple months. Um, I am, it's just been like an intense couple weeks. So I'm going to try to chill a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, I'm going to. But you got to spend all this time in Hawaii, you know, you already. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Shooting the movie was fun. Having a movie come out is kind of no fun. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of like, I mean, luckily the movie did well mm-hmm. financially, critically not so much, but that's something you have to navigate to. What is that like for you? I mean, it was a first because mm-hmm. usually my shit gets good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, it sucks. It completely sucks. And there's like no real way to a- avoid it, I think. You read it? You look at it? Well, we got an email. You get an email from the studio. So mm-hmm. I, this is, I really do want to speak about this because what I do want to know how other filmmakers handle this shit because no one wants to ask a filmmaker like that because I actually try to do it here often to be honest with you and, well tell me like this is what this is what my experience with mm-hmm. it was I looked we got like the first email of like all the trades and stuff and it was like 
I think one of them was like mixed and the other four were shitty. So I'm, I got it at like midnight, then a couple of days before it came out. And I'm like looking at it with my wife at 11 o'clock in bed and I'm like, this is not good. So then I pop a Xanax and I go to sleep. But like here, this is the thing, like you have to just develop this thick skin. And it's like interesting why, uh, to talk about Schrader because I think that he and also Amy, like they just have this sort of these inherent coping mechanisms where they genuinely do, don't care. Um, I like take, I internalize all this shit. So then like the next day, I'm just checking the tomato meter. I'm not reading anything, but I'll, I'll go to Rotten Tomatoes like kind of in, in an OCD kind of way. And then at a certain point, I'm just like, fuck it. I got to stop. I'm hurting. I like, I'm, it's like, yeah, I'm, you know. It's like when it's like an addiction. You're like, right. I'm hurting myself, and I wish it gotten better reviews. But at the same time, like this was made as a pop kind of confection, and let's hope people see it. And so then it's like, are people going to see it? And then like uh, the weekend started, people weren't seeing it that much. But then by Mother's Day, by the end of the weekend, we had a really kind of successful weekend. Then I was like, I'm checking the fuck out. Because it's too much. Like, it's just too intense. Does the reception, both critically or the financial success, change how you feel about the movie in any way? Um, Probably day to day, but not when I zoom out like a year from now. Okay. You know, because like the night before, I think when, when it came out, um, financially was not very successful. Um, So I was just like, you know, I did. I second guessed like what, what could I have done differently and whatever. And now when I zoom out a year later or a year and a half later, I'm very, very proud of that movie. I think that movie has a chance to be like a Christmas cult classic kind of, you know, it's, people who didn't see it in theaters but discovered it on cable are like, that movie's good. Yeah, it's it's really what we hoped for. Yeah. Um. So I try not to think too much about it in the moment to moment because, uh, you know, yeah, of course, you're you're always, I think as a filmmaker, you're always second guessing stuff and you're always in a constant state of evaluation because you need to get better always. You know, if you stop second guessing stuff, um, you know, it's it's this weird combination of confident and kind of permanently in in flux. Um, and you have to be confident and try things, but you know, if you're editing and you're like, "No, that's awesome." and everyone's telling you it sucks, it sucks. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you have to and like with the reviews, it's like, "Well, I've gotten good reviews most of my life. I don't want to discount those." So, I have to like kind of you know, take it. I have to kind of take in, take it a little bit, and mm-hmm. just use it to move forward. And 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 not that you make a movie to get good reviews, but it's always nice. Sure. Um. So especially if you've gotten so many, I assume that you start to ex- you start to think that this is common commonplace that you that you can expect to to be thought of well every time you work hard on something. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always envision the worst case scenario regardless. So I'm always relieved when it comes out and it's not the worst case scenario. So if you internalize this, do you now have the feeling like, fuck these guys, I'm going to show them on the next thing? I don't think it's very, I don't take the fuck you guys thing. I mean, I certainly like, you know, uh, it's nice to just sort of have like, like a coach puts a motivational quote in the locker room to like, like, yeah, like I'll picture some it's on the whiteboard reviewers fucking face when I'm making <laughs> the next movie and it'll motivate me. Yeah. But at the same time, like I think that film criticism is like an incredibly valid thing. And I don't, I'm not one of those people to be like, they don't know what they're talking about. Cause mm-hmm. obviously most of the time they do. Right. Um, it's how Schrader got his start. It's how Schrader got his start. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's kind of like, well, I'm not going to look at it and I don't necessarily care on this particular project. Um, yeah. Okay, well, let's wrap with this. What what is you've made a lot of different kinds of movies even though they all have a, a, a you know, a certain tone, you have a style. 
is there a kind of movie that you've always wanted to make that you really want to do in the next five to ten years? Um, it's interesting. No, I mean, I would really want to do... What I really want to do is a, is a movie that allows me to sort of flex style muscles a little bit more. Um, you know, The Wackness was probably one of the only ones that sort of allowed for this kind of agility of style that, that, that I, it was so point of view driven that I could do the Billie Jean thing and I could, um, I could do these kind of flights of fancy. And so, yeah, I want to, I don't know what the genre would be, but like a single point of view driven movie that, that, that can be more aggressively stylized. Um, and it would probably be something original that I did. Um, but as far as like, you know, flexing those muscles as a filmmaker, I think the Showtime pilot really did allow me to do a lot of that. And I really liked it. So, um, I think I'll do it more on the next movie, the, the, the Seth Charlize movie. Um, I like the idea of kind of, and even on Snatched, I think I did, uh, some more aggressive stylistic filmmaking than you see normally in a studio comedy. So I like the idea of kind of trying to bring more and more of that into my process um, even though in comedy it's hard because you really want to control the timing of things in a very kind of diligent way, but um, but I'd like to try that. What's the last great thing you saw? I think this Dear White People thing on Netflix was really kind of mind-blowing. I really, really liked it. I'm only halfway through the season, but I thought it was great. Um, I just saw a movie called A Bigger Splash. Have you seen that movie? Amazing. It was my favorite movie of last year. I love it, dude. It's so good. It's so beautiful and yeah. so cool and so like weird. I would like to do a movie like that. High level Ray Fiennes performance. It's a really movie. good Ray Fiennes performance. Yeah. You see his dick. You do. He's, he shows it all. It's great. Good for him. <laughs> That's an amazing place to end this great conversation. It's a nice dick. Ray finds his dick. Uh, Google it, guys. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks this for having great. me. Appreciate you, man. <laughs>